Good morning. This morning's study is as much a work of abstract art as it is a vision from God. And I've grown to appreciate over the years art that requires a degree of interpretation. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to go to the Guggenheim or the MoMA or an, a, a place where you can see some art that you might think, well, I could have done that with a roller and some latex. I very much felt like that when I went to the Guggenheim. I said, yeah, okay. But for those of us who are more sophisticated, we look at that art and we come to our own interpretation. Now, part of the problem with the book of Revelation is that if you don't have any background in the scriptures, you read the book of Revelation and you look at some of these visions and you can come to all types of conclusions. People will look at a picture in, 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 in a museum and, and they'll say, well, what does it mean to you? And there's no wrong answer, but you see, with scripture, there is. There, there are right answers and wrong answers. And so this morning in Revelation chapter 12, we're just going to look at six verses and really two pictures. And they are somewhat abstract. But remember, they're visions. And John tells us specifically in this section that they're signs. Now, there's a difference between Scripture where you have something very much spelled out, like a teaching, like Jesus is teaching uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Is there room for interpretation? Not really. It's a teaching. It's straightforward. Paul's writings, it helps to understand the background and the history, but generally what you see is what you get. When you're studying the book of Revelation or any of the prophets, you're going to find that there are these abstract visions, and to some of us, maybe really look rather bizarre. So I'm going to do my best with these two signs that John is going to share with us that he received in this section of the book of Revelation. But keep in mind that these signs are visions, which means they are by definition pictures. And while they are open to interpretation, the scripture itself gives us the correct interpretation so that we don't have to guess as to how to interpret it or guess as to what these symbols and signs mean. With that, I think you'll find today's study interesting. Some of it's already taken place, and some of it has yet to take place. But all of it is from God's word, therefore profitable, therefore encouraging, therefore helpful in us growing closer to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We are so grateful for all of your word, whether it be the poetry of the Bible, like Psalms and Proverbs or Song of Songs, or the history of the Bible, or the law, or the prophets. And so, as we look through this prophecy today, we truly desire to understand your word, that we might be blessed, but then apply your word to our hearts, that we might become more like you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So in Revelation, and in chapter 12, and in verse 1, where we left off last week, we're going to be introduced to two symbols, two signs. They're specifically called signs. And by being called signs, we're told they're not meant to be taken literally. I want you to think about a stop sign. Most of you have been well-trained. If you were to see a red sign without the word stop on it, or if you were in another country and it said pare, 
Okay? You would know it means stop because you know what the sign means. You don't need to really even have an interpretation. You're so used to what that stop sign looks like. It's red. It has, what is it, six sides, is it? You know, so, I mean, you know, that, that's something that's familiar to you. Well, when you study the scriptures, these signs become that familiar. But if you don't, you have no idea. That's my job this morning, to try to bring to you the signs from the Old and New Testaments that will unlock these truths. So let's start by looking at verses 1 and 2. John tells us that a great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. So you see what I mean? That, that's a rather strange vision. It's, it's a picture. It's a symbol. It's a sign. What does it mean? Well, that's why we're here this morning. It's important to see that the woman was clothed with, clothed with the sun, moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. To any student of the book of Genesis, it becomes glaringly apparent that this woman represents Israel. You remember last week I shared with you how in this next section of the book, so much of what we're going to be talking about is God's plan for Israel during that seven-year time period, which we call Daniel's 70th week, or the seven years of tribulation. And as we're in this time period, looking forward, we start to be introduced to these signs. Israel is represented as a woman in the Old Testament in the books of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and even Hosea. That is a common theme. The Lord speaks to Israel as a people, as his wife, really. And so when, you, when you're familiar with the prophets, it's not a stretch to think of Israel as a woman. But it goes further than that, and maybe you'll remember with me, and I encourage you to check it out this week in Genesis 37. Joseph has a dream. You're probably familiar with it. Joseph has a dream in chapter 37, verses 9 through 11, and he has a rather bizarre dream. And actually, you know, let me read it for you, because some of you may not be familiar with it, and it's probably very helpful to start with that. So let me turn to Genesis 37. You can turn if you'd like, but I'll read it for you. In Genesis 37... And in verses 9 through 11. There we go. Joseph had a dream. He had another dream. And it says there in verse 9, And he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. Now, it's interesting because that's a bizarre dream, right? Not all that different in some ways to the vision that John received. But then Jacob sort of interprets it for us because it says when he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Now notice, Jacob's able to interpret it. Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. That was a prophecy. It actually did happen where Joseph becomes the second in command in Egypt, and through the famine, that's exactly what happens. Joseph wasn't grandstanding. He, he wasn't stepping up and, and, and with an ego trip. He was sharing a dream he had, but notice his father was able to interpret it. And so with that scripture, with that sign, this shouldn't be too difficult to understand, right? The sun represents Jacob. The moon represents his mother, Rachel. And the 11 stars are his brothers, which bow down to Joseph. So Joseph himself is the 12th star. If you're with me, say amen. Amen. 
See, that makes sense. So here's the thing. That vision helps us to know right away the woman is Israel. And isn't it amazing, when people are not familiar with that, they'll come up with all kinds of conclusions as to who the woman is. And then you might as well be at the Guggenheim. You might as well be looking at a blank canvas trying to figure out what it means. And this is why so many people have problems interpreting the book of Revelation. They're not familiar with scriptures like that scripture in Genesis. And you know, it actually saddens me a little to know that many churches stay away from the Old Testament. Uh, Many of you know on Wednesday nights we're studying through the book of Esther. And I'll give you a little preview. After we're finished with the book of Revelation in a couple of months, we're going into the book of Genesis on Sunday mornings. So you heard it here first. Spoiler alert. So I am very distressed that Christians in general and churches will stay away from studies in the Old Covenant. I've shared this with you before. Uh, If you hold up your Bible and you kind of split it between uh, Malachi and Matthew, you'll see that two-thirds of your Bible is the Old Covenant. So maybe we should study it two-thirds of the time. So looking back at this vision now, that, that helps me to understand. Okay, I don't have to guess. But understand also in the scriptures that women in general are used to represent religious systems and especially in the book of Revelation. We saw this in chapter 2, verse 20. Jezebel, the name Jezebel was invoked, and it represented false teaching within the church. It's a sort of a false church. And then, of course, we haven't gotten there yet, but in chapter 17, the great prostitute, the woman that rides the beast, represents a false religion in the world. We'll talk more about that as we get through our studies. And finally, in chapter 19, the bride of Christ represents the church. So you see that reoccurring theme? Women or a woman in the scripture represent religious systems. So that's a consistent theme. And here the case is that this woman is representative of Israel and Judaism in its entirety. Now it's something, and I'm not trying to pick on anybody, but Roman Catholics incorrectly teach that this woman is Mary and they call her the queen of heaven. Now, where do you come up with that? Well, if you stare at a blank canvas long enough, I guess that's what happens. You see, you need to go into the scripture. I'm not being critical of our our, our Catholic brothers and sisters. I'm simply saying knowing the scripture helps you not to be confused. In fact, there is art in the Vatican and within Catholicism that shows Mary standing on a crescent moon with 12 stars around her head. The next time you see something like that, you'll know where that imagery comes from, but it's incorrect. The crescent moon, by the way, and this we do know, is the symbol for Allah, the God of Islam. So so you can get a little crazy. There was another woman, you may be familiar with her, Mary Baker Eddy. She was the founder of Christian Science, and she falsely claimed that she was this woman. So all kinds of things happen when you don't know the word of God. But let's move on. Notice in verse 2 that the woman was pregnant. She's in labor and she's about to give birth. Now, it's not hard to figure out that if you're picturing a woman, and that woman represents Israel, that the child that she's about to give birth to represents Christ, the Messiah. The child she's carrying is Jesus, who was born of Israel, this we know. And Israel cried out in pain at the time of Jesus' birth because they were under the Roman occupation and oppression. So the picture that we're given in verses 1 and 2 is Israel about to give birth to Messiah. And it's true that Mary, 
gave birth to Jesus, but Israel gave birth to their Messiah. So that's the picture. That's where we start. That is all in the past, our past. It was John's past as well. But that sets the stage for interpreting the rest of the vision. And so we get into verse 3. And John sees another sign in heaven, and that's the sign of a dragon. Look at verse 3. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and again, it's a sign. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. Now that again, a a rather bizarre vision. What does it mean? Well, fortunately, we have books like the book of Daniel and the rest of the book of Revelation that give us the ability to understand and interpret to a degree what this represents. Now, first of all, of course, I think you know this, Satan is represented as a dragon in Revelation. He's specifically called the dragon, the serpent, the devil in chapter 12, also in chapter 20 of this book. So we don't have to wonder, the dragon represents Satan. The woman represents Israel. So now we can see clearly the vision before us. We're going to talk a lot about, in this chapter, into next week, about what the devil, Satan, has tried to do and continues to try to do to God's chosen people, Israel. The problem is, if your eschatological theory is that Israel no longer exists and the church is now Israel, this all falls apart. Because God has a plan for his chosen people, Israel. And if you understand that, and that Satan has been trying to destroy Israel since day one, if you understand that, then it's not difficult to interpret the scripture. But if you separate that way of thinking and you step away from it and think, well, Israel doesn't exist anymore, now you're lost in the woods. And unfortunately, some very bright and intelligent men that I've read are lost in the woods in the interpretation of this scripture because they don't embrace God's plan for Israel. It's actually steeped in racism, anti-Semitism, because in the middle centuries in Europe, uh, I don't think I'm telling anyone anything new, the Europeans really despised the Jews. They were jealous of the Jews. They, They blamed the Jews as a people for killing Christ. I always think about this. Man, I'm Italian. I I can admit it was the Romans that put him on the cross, right? But there's a lot of Gentiles who, who insist on blaming the Jews. They forget Jesus, by the way, was a Jew, is a Jew, right? The the apostles, the scriptures, the culture. Paul talks about this. It's also talked about in the book of Hebrews. Listen, you need to understand that if you have even a hint of anti-Semitism in your heart, that is from Satan. That is from the dragon. All right? And the understanding that people come to about dismissing Israel comes from a time in mankind's history, European history, where the thought that God would care about the Jews was foreign to them. In fact, they launched several crusades to try to kill them all. And then, of course, we have others throughout the history of Europe leading right up to Adolf Hitler and Benito Mussolini and others, and it continues today, who have tried to, with satanic inspiration, destroy God's chosen people, the Jews. And it continues today. So if you understand that conflict as a Christian, that yes, we are in a time of grace, we'll talk some about that, and this doesn't really impact us directly, indirectly it does, 
But if you understand that there's really, there's God's chosen people, Israel, the woman, and there's Satan trying to destroy the woman. If you understand that, you'll be able to unlock all of human history. You'll be able to understand what has been going on all this time. And it starts to make sense. Why on earth would one group of people be so despised and hated and hunted down and destroyed over the centuries, millennia? Well, now you know. So as we look at this, and we've read just this verse 3, this dragon, enormous red dragon, we're told seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns. Those are symbols. We're going to unpack them in a minute. We're told that I'm going to read it for you. You're going to jump ahead. A little spoiler alert here. In chapter 17, um, just, just hear me out because we're going to get to this again. This is like the first coat of paint. We're going to have to go over this again. But for now, let's start by, I'm just going to read chapter 17 of the book of Revelation because it actually interprets this for us. Here's, here it goes. I know it, these are very abstract concepts. But in verse 9, this calls for a mind with wisdom. That is understanding. That's why I say you need to know the scriptures to unpack it. But it says the seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. But not just seven hills, because it goes on to say they are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain for a little while. That's very, very abstract. I understand that. And we'll have to go over this again. But for now, we know there's seven heads or seven hills. Now, if you're familiar with any description of Rome, you know that Rome is a city that sits on seven hills. There are other cities. But at the center of the, the first century Christianity, you had Rome as not an ally at all to Christianity. In fact, it's, it's fair to say Rome has really never been an ally to Christianity, biblical Christianity. But the seven hills of Rome are pictured as seven heads. They represent that, but they also represent something else. And John is writing, some of this is cryptic and has to be interpreted and unpacked, which we'll do. But there are also seven kings or forms of Roman government. As it turns out, we know from other scriptures, the book of Daniel and even Revelation, that there'll be a revived European power, a revived Roman Empire, which will be the seat of Satan's power during the tribulation period. We talked about this in the book of Daniel. We've talked about it in Revelation. We'll talk some more about it in this study. Rome will also be the center of a false religious system that actually worships the devil, worships Satan. We're not there yet, but that's where this Roman system is heading. All right, we're not there yet. But having said that, there are also ten horns. And we know from Revelation 17, verse 12, that the ten horns you saw, the angel tells John, are ten kings, who have not yet received the kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. Now, the beast is this antichrist figure, which we'll talk much about in chapter 13. There are two beasts, actually, two antichrists, uh, and we'll go into that in detail next week. We'll start that, actually in two weeks, we'll start that process. But for now, ten horns, ten kings. That's the important thing. Kings that receive power along with the coming world ruler. This is a reoccurring theme. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. There was a statue. And the last kingdom, the Roman Empire, pictured as the feet of clay and iron, had ten toes. So, This idea, in the last days, there'll be a Roman power that's broken up into ten divisions, 
has led many people to try to predict what this power will be. I, at one point, the European Union had 10 members and people were going crazy. Since then, they're well over that. All right. Uh, the UN has been looked at, the European Union, other groups of uh, you know, countries and nations. But I don't think you're, you're going to be able to predict what this is because we're not there yet. At some point, there will be a Eurocentric power that has 10 kings. Those 10 kings will give their power to this one individual. And that brings us into some of the rest of this book, which I'm going to hit the pause button on now because we don't want anyone's brain exploding right? You know, least of all mine. Okay, so one of the things we learn is that these ten kings or ten horns, which represent ten kings, have seven crowns. Now that's interesting because they represent the authority of the devil over these ten kingdoms. You have ten kingdoms, but only seven crowns. So what does that mean? Well, in chapter 12, we're told that this beast, which represents Satan and his kingdom on earth, only has seven crowns. But we know that it will eventually have ten crowns. Because if you go to chapter 13, verse 1, we're introduced to the beast in his kingdom, which is the devil's kingdom. And we read there, I saw a beast coming out of the sea, and he had ten horns and seven heads. And how many crowns? Ten crowns on his horns. So there's a difference between chapters 12 and chapters 13, or chapter 12 and chapter 13, of three crowns. Are you with me? Everyone doing math this morning? I know it's a little early. It was a little cold this morning. Seven plus three is ten, right? Okay, good. We don't need to get the flashcards out. So somehow three crowns are a little different than the other seven, but eventually Satan's kingdom has all ten. And that's important to remember. Daniel talks about ten. The book of Revelation, John talks about ten. But in this one moment, we see only seven. But what's also interesting is in Daniel 7, we're told that this Antichrist will subdue three of the kings. So when we put all of that scripture together, we learn that when Satan's kingdom emerges on earth, it'll start out having control over seven of the ten, but ultimately, he will subdue the last three And once he has control of all ten of those kings and their kingdoms, that's when things will really start to get difficult. All right? So that's what will happen in the future. I don't have more detail than that necessarily, but that kind of gives us an understanding of how to interpret. This is Satan, and we're learning something about how his kingdom will come into power. That's what we're being taught here. Now, in verse 4, we learn something about Satan in the heavenlies. And this is quite interesting. We learn there that his tail, remember he's a dragon or pictured as a dragon. So his tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. Now, what does that mean? Well, again, we have to go back to the old covenant and the scriptures and even the New Testament to understand that angels, and I've shared this with you before, are represented as stars in the scripture. Many times, Stars and angels are interchangeable. We've seen this already in our study. One of the things to keep in mind is when, in ancient times, people talked about heavenly beings, they would look up into the celestial sky, and they would see planets, and they would see stars, and they would give them names. Some of the planets didn't follow the other constellations. They were called wandering stars, which in Greek is planet. 
So that's where we get that word from. So the idea is you have these wandering stars that don't follow the course of the constellations, and they saw them as being independent to the rest of the heavens, and they called them gods. They believed they were either representative of or actually were the gods that they worshipped. And of course, we've named our planets in our solar system after the Roman gods, haven't we? We know that. So all of that to say that when they looked in the sky and they saw these lights in the constellations, they believed that they were linked to angels or spiritual beings. Now, of course, that's like believing the, the world is flat, although there are actually some people out there that do today, which is kind of interesting. But having said that, the, the ancient mind associated stars with angels, and that's for good reason. Listen, listen. Even in the book of Job and in the book of Revelation, we, we see that connection between stars and angels. And so... And that's in Job 38. So, a third of the angels in heaven serve Satan. Anyone bothered by that? Because when I first understood that, I got a little wigged out. You mean a third of God's created angels are swept in the rebellion that Satan brings against God and his throne? I don't know, there's something about that that really rubs me the wrong way. I, I look at that and I think to myself, okay, I get that Adam and Eve, in innocence, chose to sin and disobeyed God. I can, I can get my brain around how that happened and why it happened with, with, of course, Satan's temptation. But I have to be honest. When I think of angels, I give them more credit. But remember that Satan himself is described as a cherub, the anointed cherub that covers the throne of God. So we don't have a lot of information about the rebellion in heaven. We're actually going to talk about war in heaven next week. But that's not the original rebellion. The original rebellion that took place in heaven took place, as far as I can tell, at some point, certainly before the Garden of Eden. And there seems to have been a moment where Satan led a third of the angels in heaven against God and his throne. I don't know. I, I don't even know how to respond to that, except that it's bizarre, but it's also enlightening to know that it's actually a third of the angels. So that's what we're told there. We're, we're given an understanding of the power of the, the kingdom of darkness. Now, that's not even talking about demons, which we've talked about in, in previous studies, because demons and fallen angels are different things. So think about the kingdom of darkness for a minute, and now you begin to understand why this world is so messed up. There's the influence of Satan himself, evil spirits, but then you have fallen angels, a third of them. How many angels are there? Well, here's the scary thought. When we see the visions of heaven in the book of Revelation, many times the angels are described as 10,000 times 10,000. Well, let's just say, let's just say there's a million. I think there's more than that, but let's just say there are a third of a million. This kind of stuff can keep you up at night if you think about it too much. There's a lot of darkness in this world, and it begins to give us the understanding of what we're up against, except one little truth. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. John told us that. So we have God. If God is for us, who can be against us? We, we know that, that, that we're on the winning side of this conflict, but there is a conflict. And that's what we're told here. So we're, we're being sort of prepped for the rest of this book, told that Israel's at the center of this conflict. And the scripture tells us that uh, Israel is really the apple. God says Israel is the apple of his eye. That's that little part of your eye here that's very sensitive. 
the apple of his eye. What does Satan try to do? Poke God in the eye. That's what we're in the middle of. That's what we're experiencing in real time here on this planet. A war. A celestial, yes, but spiritual war between the forces of good and the forces of evil. And we're caught in between. And some human beings choose to side with the devil and his angels, many unfortunately, and some, all of us say amen, have sided with God and his angels, and we are involved in a great eternal conflict. But I got news for you. I know who wins. If you know who wins, say amen. Amen. There you go. So you're encouraged. I'm not so crazy about being involved in a you know, an eternal battle with the forces of, well, it's not eternal because God's going to destroy them ultimately, but a a, a battle in the heavenlies, a a battle of of spiritual forces. But I'm real happy to know that I'm on the winning side. Now, I haven't been following football for the last couple of years. Many of you know I gave up that, not just for Lent, I just gave it up. And so I'm not really following it anymore. Some of you still are, I'll pray for you. But it's a personal choice. But a lot of people would like to know who's going to win the Super Bowl, right? We we always, I mean, all kinds of prognostications as to who's going to win. But we don't have to guess about who wins this conflict. It's God and his people, and we're going to get there when we get to future studies. But, But for now, just to know we're on the winning side helps me to endure the darkness of this world. So... We also learn something else. And here's where the conflict comes into play. In the latter part of verse 4, the dragon, who is Satan, right, stood in front of the woman, who is Israel, who was about to give birth so that, she might, that, so that he, that is the, the dragon, might devour her child, who is Jesus, right? The moment it was born. Now you might be saying, well, Pastor Tim, how do you know the child is Jesus? Well, if I continue... I'm going to be able to make that interpretation, but we're going to stop there for just a minute. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. Now, it was Satan, clearly, that inspired Herod's attempt to kill Jesus shortly after he was born. That that shouldn't be any surprise to us at all from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2. But it wasn't the end of it. You know, Jesus was harassed and attacked by Satan throughout his earthly life. Not just the temptation, but throughout his life. Think of the mocking on the cross. Where do you think that came from? Think of the religious leaders who obviously gave their hearts to the devil. And Jesus said so. Think of all those that stood against him. Or there were many that stood with him, but that stood against him. Where, where was that inspiration coming from? What, what side of the conflict were the religious people of Jesus' day and the people that stood against Christ and abandoned him or, or betrayed him or whatever, had no desire to follow him? See, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is you are in a war. And there are sides. As clear as whether you wear green or red to the Super Bowl. There are sides. Pick a side. Don't stay in the middle, because here's the thing. If you think in this celestial conflict, in this spiritual conflict, that you can sit on the sidelines and say, like many people do, oh, I'm just watching the Super Bowl for the commercials. If you think that you can just sit there and not pick a side, you are picking a side by default. If you reject Christ and his kingdom by default, you're on Satan's side. 
Oh, how can you say that, Pastor Tim? I didn't pick a side. I'm neutral. I'm Switzerland. No. Because when you reject Christ, you allow yourself to be open to the devil and his inspiration, influence. And then the problem with that is, the scripture says, he's able to take you captive to do his will. Captive at his will. So pick a side already. Well, you know, we get so frustrated. You ever get frustrated with family members who've come to church and they've heard the gospel, or co-workers and you've shared it? And I can almost kind of, I mean, I, I understand and, and can somewhat respect the person that says, I hear what you're saying. I understand that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, that he rose again on the third day, that he ascended into heaven where he ever lives to make intercession on the behalf of those that love him, and that he's coming again, but I'm just not interested. I mean, I think that's a little nuts, but at least they understand what they're saying no to. You know what the worst is? The person that says, yeah, that's good for you. Well, you know, I don't really think we have to make a choice. I mean, all roads lead to God. Kind of a wishy-washy, new-age way of thinking. The saddest thing of all, that person's truly deceived. The other person is in rebellion, open rebellion. But the person that talks like that is deceived into believing you can just stand on the sidelines. No, brothers and sisters, there's a choice to be made. And I don't want to be on the side of the losing side, but I also don't want to be on the side of Satan and his angels. That cannot end well. In fact, you'll see exactly how it ends when we get to chapter 20. But I get ahead of myself. You guys are going to be like paging ahead in the book this week, which is good. I get you to read your Bibles. Okay, so that is pretty clear, except that you're probably thinking, well, how do you know the child is Jesus, the Messiah? Well, first of all, it's Israel giving birth, but but let's go a little bit further. Look at verse 5. In verse 5, we read, she gave birth to a son. Okay. A male child. Good. Who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. Now, now it becomes glaringly apparent. We're not even finished yet, but just in a moment. Like, that is enough to know that we're talking about Jesus. How do I know that? Well, first thing you need to know, Isaiah predicted that a male child would be born to Israel as their Messiah. We know that. I'm sure you do. We, we actually, I believe, we studied that uh, for Christmas this year. Well, a child born to Israel, the child born to Israel is Jesus the Messiah. If you've read Luke's Gospel or watched the Peanuts Christmas special, you know from the Gospel of Luke that that is true. His birth was actually the beginning of his first earthly ministry. And we celebrate that in December, but we celebrate that every day of our lives. And then you have the book of Psalms in Psalm 2, verse 9, which predicted that Messiah would rule over all the nations with an iron scepter. I mean, it's specifically quoted from Psalm 2, which is a messianic psalm, verse 9. The anointed ruler, the Messiah, who would reign is Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. By the way, Messiah is a Hebrew word. The Greek word is Christ. So when we say Jesus Christ, what we're saying is he is the Messiah. And of course, his second coming will be the beginning of his second earthly ministry, when he rules the nations with an iron scepter. I can't wait. There's a sick, twisted part of me. It's not godly. They can't wait for him to get the iron scepter and go to town. Maybe it's the martial artist in me. I just want to see him grab the iron scepter and rule this wicked world for God. I'm tired of the wickedness. I'm tired of the darkness. I'm tired of the abuse of children and all people in the world. I'm tired of the wars. 
If you're like me, you can't wait for Jesus to get the iron scepter and rule this nation for good, with compassion and love. Oh, I'm up for that. The sick and twisted part is what I imagine he'll do with the iron scepter, but we don't need to go there this morning. I just know that God is going to rule and reign on this earth, and we talked about it last week. When he does, I'm going to be so much happier, and I'm pretty happy this morning, but I'm saying I'm going to be so much happier than I am at the moment. So that will be the beginning of his second earthly ministry. Now, now Psalms. Psalms predicted that Messiah would ascend into heaven. That's what we're talked about here, right? Snatched up to God into his throne. Where's Jesus? Well, he's alive. The tomb is empty, but where is he? Snatched up to God and to his throne. And he's, we know the book of Psalms tells us in Psalm 110 that Messiah would ascend into heaven before he reigned on earth. He would sit at the right hand of God the Father until his enemies became his footstool. That's what the scripture tells us. So the Lord right now is sitting at the right hand of God the Father. We saw him there in chapters 4 and 5. This is Jesus, our great king. This is Jesus the Christ. This is Jesus the Messiah. And so remember that his ascension into heaven in the book of Acts was the end of his first earthly ministry. So the birth, the ascension, that was, that was his earthly ministry. But when he comes again to rule the nations with an iron scepter, as the Lord of lords and king of kings, that's when his second earthly ministry will begin, and I can't wait. You probably got that impression already. So all of this points us in the direction of good times are ahead, but getting there, how do we get there? Well, we have to be patient. We have to wait on the Lord. God is, in, God is not in a rush because he wants all to come to know him. We talked about this last week. We're in a time of grace where God is offering his, his love and his life on behalf of those who will come to him. So, you know, I often think about this. What's, what's keeping this from happening? Well, it's God's will. It's God's timing. But somewhere on earth at some point there's going to be the last person who gets saved before the Lord comes back again. For his church, but also when he comes to earth. If we knew that guy's name, we'd find him, wouldn't he? Or girl, whoever she is. We'd witness 24-7. We want this to happen as Christians. We want the Lord to return. And by the way, we're going to receive communion in a few minutes. And what did Jesus say? As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do preach the Lord's death until he comes. So today's an opportunity to preach that truth. Not just by words, but by actions, by, by receiving the communion elements. You're saying, I believe everything Pastor Tim just said. Everything the Bible teaches about Jesus, I believe it. I believe it. And I'm preaching it until it happens. When it happens, I don't need to preach it anymore. And we look forward to that day. One last thing to talk about, because many people have questions about, okay, well, the church, what happens to the church? It seems pretty clear in the scripture that the church will be raptured, taken up into God's throne. Now, there are some debate about when that happens. It seems pretty clear that it happens at least by the middle of the seven-year period. I personally believe it more than likely happens before the seven-year period begins. But that's irrelevant. What's most important is to know that at some point, according to Paul's teaching and Jesus' teaching as well, that the church is going to be caught up to God and to his throne, the bride of Christ. So much of what we read about here, we won't be on earth for. But what about Israel? Because that's what we're talking about here, the woman. What about the woman? 
What is going to happen to God's chosen people? They're not going to be raptured. So what's going to happen to them during these seven years? Well, as far as we can tell, the first three and a half years, they're protected. And then in the middle of that seven-year period, things go a little crazy. And they're hunted down. And they have to flee. Jesus talked about this. We read about it in the Gospels. They have to flee in Matthew 24. They have to leave Judea and they have to go into the desert, the wilderness. Jesus told them, don't even go back in the house. Just get out. That will, I believe, happen in the middle of that seven-year time period. But what happens to Israel? With all the power of the darkness, what, who is going to protect them and keep them? The church has a place in heaven, but Israel will have a place on earth. Let's read. Last verse for the, this morning. Some of you are saying amen. The woman, that is Israel, fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. That time period comes up over and over again. It's 42 months, three and a half years. A time, times, and half a time. Over and over again, you have this three-and-a-half-year time period talked about because it's for those three-and-a-half years, the last three-and-a-half years of a seven-year time period, that Israel will be protected in safe harbor. God will protect them. So whether you're a member of the church, protected in heaven, or you're on earth as a, one of the chosen people of God, you will be protected by God. And that's the important truth I leave you with this morning. Your faith and your hope as a member of the church is in being with Jesus. But the chosen people who come to him during this time of tribulation will also be protected by Jesus. God has not forsaken Israel. Can you say amen? Once you understand that basic truth, prophecy will all begin to come into line. You'll be able to understand the scriptures. If you reject that truth, good luck. So, the woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God. Israel's going to flee. They're going to flee to the desert where God will care for them and protect them from Satan. They may flee to a rock city, we know, maybe, maybe, to a place called Petra. It's south of the Dead Sea in modern Jordan. Isaiah, in chapter 16, seems to indicate it's that general area that they'll flee to. They'll have to leave Israel. And where are they going to go? Interestingly enough, Jordan. It's a kind of a strange turn of events, if you will. But the area of the world we know from Daniel, chapter 11, is one of the few areas of the world delivered from the Antichrist. We're told that specifically in Daniel, chapter 11, verse 41. So Israel's going to flee into the desert for three and a half years, And listen, from Jesus' ascension, which we talked about, into heaven, to Israel's three and a half years in the desert, are at least two millennia. So there's this time period between the last time Jesus was ministering to the chosen people, Israel, to the next time, and it's such a long time. And that's where we're living, brothers and sisters, in this time period. We call a time of grace. It's the church age. And... By the way, when you interpret the prophecies of Daniel, there are 70 weeks or 77s. And 69 of those seven years have already been fulfilled. There remains one last seven-year time period that has yet to be fulfilled. And boy, there's a gap between the 69th and the 70th week. And we're living in that gap. And that's why it's hard to know what comes next. 
Because until this prophetic clock starts ticking again, we really don't know when. We know what will happen. We just don't really know when. And that's why he'll come like a thief in the night. We won't know, but we need to be prepared. So, when considering the prophecies concerning Israel's future, this break in prophetic history is called the mystery of the gospel. Now, it's not a mystery to us, but it was a mystery to the prophets because they didn't even see it coming. They thought, you know this, they thought Jesus was going to come as Messiah and rule and reign with that iron scepter. They never knew about a gap of two uh, two, two, uh, thousand years, uh, two millennia. They, They didn't know that. So it was called the mystery, but Paul talks about it as a mystery that we understand. The mystery of the gospel, and we are living in that time. The mystery of the gospel. What have you done with that mystery that has now been revealed to you? Brothers and sisters, pick a side. Choose this day whom you will serve. Today, harden not your heart. Today is the acceptable day of salvation. As we receive the communion elements, as I ask the worship team to come up, I think Anthony's coming up, keep that in mind. Don't come up to this table, take the communion elements, and pretend you're choosing a side. Please, don't do that. But please don't sit in your seat and remain neutral. Come on in, kids. It's okay. This is the opportunity for you, if you haven't already, to choose Jesus, to choose God, to choose the kingdom of light and salvation for all eternity. But if you're playing games, don't bother. We don't play games here at Calvary Chapel. All right? You come forward, when we see you come forward, we know you're saying to everybody here, to God and to your, to your own heart, I choose Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Heavenly Father, thank you. You've challenged us today, and yes, there were some visions to look at, but the most important thing is the choice we need to make. So I ask for every heart here today that every single person will make the right choice, will choose you and choose life to live their lives for you, to belong to you, that they might spend an eternity with you. And we thank you, Lord, for your word and for these communion elements as we profess our faith and preach your death until you come. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.